Hi guys, you're listening to the Morning After the Life Before podcast. I'm Jack Schofield. And I'm Sam Corty. And the idea of this podcast is we're going to invite guests on to talk about their unheard stories behind their success and their character. We want to listen to their mischievous childhoods, bumpy educations and stories that don't quite fit the stereotypical model. The idea is we're going to wake up to find out what really happened behind the scenes and stories that never quite made it to social media. This podcast is currently supported and produced by the team at 226 Photography. I was trying to move my microphone back. I couldn't. I was moving, but my microphone wasn't moving. But I was moving the wrong idiot. But okay, I have just woken up from a nap. Uh, but you had it plugged in this time. I've got it plugged in, but I just woke up from a nap. I'm literally <laughs> I just napped. We're only sixteen thirty-two now, so that's some good going. Yeah. Well, I had everything read my laptop out. And I got it all my pre-nap organised good i'm not gonna yeah ben gave us a good lesson on um how to podcast (laughs) yeah science and stuff science and stuff and also he should have written an idiot's guide to using an idiot podcast before we introduce him we should start with like how are you getting on how have you been it's been we recorded this about three months ago so a lot's happened i was actually listening to something and used james bond film is out today yeah i'm watching it tonight almost like oh like I was eight years old. The last one was released. And everyone's like, oh, I must be like four then. And I was just literally saying, it. well, I much had recorded the last one. <laughs> and that the last James Bond film went out. It feels like it was... <laughs> yeah, I should admit, that is entirely my fault. I've been crazy busy. And... Now I'm less busy, so that's good, and I've edited it finally. And I, I should apologise to Ben mostly because he has been waiting for it, and he hasn't even mentioned it. He's been so polite. Good. But yeah, so we should probably to give everyone a t- pre-Olympics. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. What have you been up to? Um, you, how's the rehab? How's training? You've started back um, this week. Yeah, so rehab, rehab is going really well past my three month mark that was all good then got given three weeks off didn't like not doing anything uh, that was an actual like pretty stressed out during that time as well because if my back doesn't like me not doing anything how I cope do doing something like yeah. my back can't do a three-week break nurse is it gonna do a olympic program so i it's stressful um i did manage to get some emergency physio and i saw the team doc really good and they they just calmed me down um they were like it's it's just the muscles have everything just needs to keep moving and doing anything i was just stopped training and keep it happy but Mm. just yeah just didn't like it um so yeah i spoke to the physios and the team then me and Matilda, Ben, uh, girlfriend, we went on a, a gay, which was really nice, and just escaped. Well, like I think I only really my family knew, which was really nice. We were literally just in like the middle of the Tuscan Hills. That was really good fun. We had a pool, so I could do some. Just you and Ben's ex-girlfriend. Ben's ex. 
<laughs> his yeah was his girlfriend um so yeah so that was <laughs> the podcast that explained that yeah story. we'll leave that one <laughs> she do some swimming and does like some more mobility stuff and had my first week back at school this week yeah my back definitely prefers it's actually been really nice training with people again because i did like three months i go into the intent really looking forward to that a little apprehensive do need to take my swimming costume and a towel on the f- so i'm kind of hoping they're not just going to get me to swim <laughs> you probably still end up better at swimming than i am I remember i dislocated my shoulder swimming yeah the jury's out on that actually uh so yeah <laughs> looking forward to it basically just gonna go and absorb as it should be a really good experience accelerate the rehab a bit yeah yeah things are still on track so yeah um you should probably tell people in the newspaper i mean not very good like reason but kind of cool and hadn't been about you yeah i'm famous now i will sign autographs after we finish podcasting (laughs) no not really um yeah i had a mad few weeks so i unfortunately i had a fall fell over uh that must be like six weeks ago and thought i'd broken my toe so it turns out I hadn't broken my toe. I've just got quite late stage arthritis. So uh, OA, not rheumatoid. So there's no cartilage between my joints. So I've bruised my bone. So I had to, that sort of like cancelled my season, stopped it dead in its tracks. So I was then getting treatment for that. So then I was like, oh, well, I can't run. And I was struggling swimming a bit because of like pushing off the walls, etc. And just generally being crap at swimming. So then I was like, I'll just ride my bike loads. Started to get a couple of weeks off, got back into the swing of riding. And then we were on our way to a wedding uh, down in Cheltenham. I was cycling and Vicky was going to come after work in the car uh, with all like our stuff. And halfway there, I was on the way. I was going through a little town called Ashby de la Zouche, now known as Ashby de la Ouch. I basically just was going around this roundabout and a, a mini roundabout and a car has decided to not use the roundabout, ignore the fact I'm there, and come the wrong way around the roundabout. So we've collided near enough head-on. Bike went like 15 foot up in the air, uh, smashed all the front windscreen. Yeah, pretty gnarly, really. All that sort of happened, well, all that happened, I wrote my bike off and was rushed to hospital to check if I'd broken my neck, etc. And like super, super, super luckily, all that happened is my other foot, I've like knocked the joint out of place. So yeah, still can't really walk properly and I've got to sort that out. But like incredibly grateful that I actually walked away at all, you know, like there's there's so many scenarios where that goes south really quickly. So I put some, there are photos on my Instagram and there's a video there in the reel just to kind of say like, look, I've walked away from this. And a lot of people don't, you know, we've got friends that, that, get either paralyzed or they break their neck or their back or like even worse you know like there are people that similar crashes that are much more severe so i felt really grateful for that and wanted to raise raise awareness a bit so put the put the photo and video out and it just i put my phone down so we arrived once we'd finished with hospital and stuff and then put the photo i put my phone down and we went for dinner with some friends and i came back to my phone and it just exploded i had like I must have had 200 messages on Instagram. My WhatsApp was just pinging nonstop, like loads of missed calls, everyone just checking in basically. And um, obviously, I luckily, was, as I say, was fine and had put put out that I was fine, but just wanted to, to let everyone know. So yeah, then managed to make it in the Daily Mail and the Yorkshire Post and the Leicestershire Post. And it was in Stoke and online and a few articles. And yeah, it just went a bit nuts. Now the BBC want to 
get me in some documentary with Nick Knowles and it's all pretty which is ironic because he hates cyclists but um, we'll see how that one pans mm-hmm. out so yeah that was a bit crazy and then the last few weeks I've not really been doing a lot we caught up over the weekend which is really nice all our friends had a gathering yeah turned out to be a goodbye party celebrating him yeah. passing his driving test exactly the dream it failed four times left it 10 years and came back and Probably more than 10 years, probably more like 15 years. Yeah, that's a moral. No, that'd make him like 12. Moral of the stories, never give up. <laughs> it will be 10 years. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then today I went for my injection on my original foot and uh, the specialist gave me the wrong injection. I was on the way home and he called me. He's like, oh, by the way, we've injected you with the wrong stuff. I was like, sweet. <laughs> Just to continue my good luck, what happens now? <laughs> so, yeah, got that to look forward to. All, all fun and games this end. Luckily, I'm... I'm guessing he hasn't injected... He's, he's put steroids in instead of acid. Okay. So, yeah, he gave me painkillers for the pain I don't have rather than giving me the lubricant for the joint I need. So, yeah, got to go back and get that done properly. But generally, despite the fact from the neck down, my body's sort of falling apart. From the neck up, I'm in quite a good place with it all. Obviously, I'd rather not be injured and not have written off my season and all that sort of stuff. Kona, for us, was postponed to to May in St. George, but I opted to still race in Hawaii in October next year because that's the race I qualified for. That's the race I want to do. So yeah, on the training side of things, actually taking it quite well. And then by seeing friends and you know catching up with people and um, getting stuck into other projects, as well as actually just having some time off. Like this week, I've enjoyed a real nice bit of downtime those things have sort of kept me in a good headspace which could easily have not happened I've in the past when I've been into just gone down that spiral of like what on earth happens now yeah like I this has by far been my worst injury this is going to sound weird but I can just deal with this one like probably more, more mature way yeah and don't stress about yeah, definitely learn how to deal with it and I feel crap so I'm going to see more people and do this or I'm going to stress about this but actually weird but you can't like tell anyone to be like that so like you have to have to learn it yourself yeah and that was the same when I got the arthritis verdict of like you know I don't have too many I might not have many years of running left we're yet to see when it gives me the right injection, how my body responds to that. But like, I didn't, didn't take that as a huge, like, oh, my triathlon career is over. It's more like, cool, so make the most of what I do have and then, um, yeah, get back into into riding my bike and, you know, free up a bit more time for some other things. And there's always opportunities. Uh, I think we're it's a privilege to be in that scenario anyway, so sort of have, have the perspective on that, especially since it crashed, you know, being able to actually walk away, um, it does make you feel very mortal but does offer a lot of a lot of perspective yeah so we should introduce our our guest we've obviously used his name a few times do you want to introduce him he's your he is your your best friend's ex-boyfriend after all <laughs> he's my ex-boyfriend um no i don't think he's friend. i don't know <laughs> i'll let, i don't know how we're gonna describe that from the start but um our guest is ben riley o'donnell it's clear at this point he is is still will be for a long time matilda's who i live with matilda for i don't even know how long i've lived with matilda lived with matilda what two years i think i don't know but yeah ben works at 
the university hospital in like the I think it's like the in the heart and lung area. Basically, he's like a genius human heart. He talks a little bit about how into it in science grew the work that he's currently doing, which was like fascinating. So yeah, it's a slightly different podcast in that you'll probably listen. We talk for myself here about the conversation that we had and just like mind blowing. Yeah. That we don't know anything about bits and pieces, but like the actual ins and outs and crazy. So it's a really different podcast. Really, really interesting. And I think like listen back to I think possibly one of my favourite. Yeah, introducing him as Matilda's boyfriend probably initially sells him short. He's obviously yeah very, very talented in what he does, and it's quite far removed and in a, a lot of ways ta- linked. But yeah, quite far removed from the worlds we operate in. So yeah, I absolutely loved it. Super insightful. He's evidently very intelligent. Yeah, I quite enjoyed the kind of how it how it panned out with yeah a few laughs and um a lot of lot of valuable information along the way so hope you enjoy it here we go jack's gonna record this because it's funny <laughs> oh, <here we> go. <laughs> so the ga- the gain is basically like volume for the input does that make sense so you can hear me really clearly now yeah but it's better to get more just get more volume than to because it uh, the gain is artificial it's digital so it's okay. just amplifying what's there. So it's, it's better to collect with less gain because then you'll have more fidelity. So I should be less gain and closer to the microphone. Yeah. So here we have the Ben Riley O'Donnell podcast with guests Sam and Jack. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew that my electrophysiology would come in handy right now? <laughs> Do I sound better on this microphone? No. <laughs> That's That's the there are also like other buttons on this microphone that are like... What else have you got? dials that i think are supposed to you're supposed to use depending on what you're like recording but the box is downstairs and that's a bit of effort um, to go and see yeah. maybe i can check on my phone that's like my actual microphone instead of my headphones microphone so you two are going to sound really professional and then i'm going to sound like well we're not though are we because jack's going to put this in the podcast and we sound like <laughs> absolute yeah. idiots <laughs> maybe, maybe i'll have to move it to the end <laughs> All the gear and no idea. So we may as well dive straight in. Ben, thanks for coming on the podcast. No worries. Thanks for having me. So we should say again, like most of our guests, we have met you before. You know Sam very well after... Sam, did you live... how long did you live with Matilda for? Uh, Two years. Ben, you were our Matilda's boyfriend. I thought you were going to say were, were then. I was a bit worried. <laughs> <laughs> I know something you A bit of a, bit of a harsh way to tell me about it. <laughs> News just in. <laughs> Gonna make for a very different podcast. And we've met a couple of times, like at Henley, and when I've been down to visit, and also Tom Pearson Smith's wedding when you had the light up shoes that we infamously talked about. I don't know where they've gone. I looked for them the other week. I think they must be at my parents' house, though. So I'll have another look. You completely misplaced them. Yeah, like they're not in. They're not in London at all. You'd think, you'd think a pair of shoes that literally light up would be pretty easy to find, but turns out maybe not. So you're a bit different to the rest of our guests in that... I'm not very good do... at sports. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to say that. <laughs> I mean, you've done some cool stuff for sport when you were younger, didn't you race at Henley with um, our previous guest, Tim? Yeah, I, I, I did Henley with Tim. I wasn't horrific, but I mean, 
we we I don't think we got through a round that year, so we were pretty bad. It was Prince of Wales though, so a little bit more hard than the PA. Have you how many times have you raced at Enley? I I only did it when I was at university, so I think I only did it three or four times. I, I, I never I never got a good run at Headley. I was me neither. Yeah, me neither. To be fair, <laughs> I never made it out of qualifying. <laughs> oh, I did. I, I've done. I did better than that then. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I mean, one of the crews we'd been in once the day before, one of the crews destined to never well, make it. What, what, what about that eight? Because there was like that eight with people like Tom in who didn't... Yeah, that was you... that was it, the banter eight that we sat in the day and... before. Oh, that was just the day before? Because that went quite quick, didn't it, not? Yeah, well, like three of the guys were had retired like 18 months before and um, hadn't come out of retirement, were still very much retired. It was just a random, should we just put an entry in for for shits and giggles and um who else in it? alex livingston alex lightfoot charlie willard yeah, it's good book. liam bromley i only had to do qualifiers one year and so in my last year of rowing i was actually getting relatively fit and then sort of in the january february time i randomly started getting problems with my heart which basically meant i had to stop rowing like overnight i kind of wasn't ready to not spend every waking hour at the boathouse so I, I kind of jumped into the coaching side of things basically the like the third eight for UL was going absolutely horrifically so Brian who was the coach at the time basically rang me up the week before Henley qualifies and was like I can't enter a temple a, a boat into the temple and it not qualify I'd rather not it not go do you think do you think you could manage like a run down the track well anyway I I, I kind of agreed to it and I was written off for about a month afterwards it was one of the most I was like an absolute ghost when I finished, but we did qualify, so <laughs> that was quite good. But I don't know how I managed it. Does that still stop you doing sport then? I I, I, do, I don't really get it anymore. I, it was basically like a, I think I must have had like a virus, and then I basically wasn't coping with stress very well because it was my final year of my degree. I kind of had this weird arrhythmia that would kind of come up every now and then. Um, it came to a head. What well, I was literally in a boat one day and I I, I couldn't move. So that was quite oh, scary, but yeah, I kind of just manage it now. So like, I I don't I only have like one cup of coffee a day, so I don't have too much caffeine and don't do any exercise. Well, yeah, exactly. Or like, I, like I, I don't think I'm very competitive anymore. Yeah, like I've lost that. So I like I do sport because I like to do it now rather than because you've picked yourself up a bike recently as well, right? Well, yeah, Matilda picked me up a bike. <laughs> quite a nice bike from what yeah, I understand. All, 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 all the gear and no idea now. <laughs> <laughs> like me and Sam on a podcast. <laughs> yeah, Speak for yourself. Reminds me of some <laughs> microphones. I took it to, uh, last week. I went home. I took it. I took it to Durham, and I got my brother to set me a um, training loop to my sister's house. And he basically took me up every twenty percent hill in Durham. And there is a lot of hills in Durham. And I caught I caught an illness on the week that weekend, and I think possibly. Going out in the rain and doing ridiculous hill climbs was probably not the best thing for me to be doing. Have you only got one brother? I've got, I've got, I'm from a big family. You probably don't know this, Jack. No. We'll There's go. a lot of them. I've got an older brother and an older sister and a younger brother and a younger sister. Oh, nice. So you've got real middle child syndrome. Yeah, yeah. I'm a proper middle child. Yeah. The worst. That's why I, I actually don't me. think Ben does have middle child syndrome. <laughs> no. Yeah, but I'm weird. Everyone else in my family is quite normal. Like, yeah, but I don't think you're like a middle child. Like my sister's not going to listen to this, but she has serious <laughs> middle child syndrome. Well, she did have, not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> what way would it manifest? Well, she was just a brat when she was younger. <laughs> Through the various podcasts, we just slam Sam's family. <laughs> 
and then rub their ego on the ones we know they're gonna i say we sam slams her family and then rubs their ego on the ones she knows they'll listen to yeah <laughs> we have to make a public apology to sam's brother ben on like podcast episode four because we'd slammed him so hard <laughs> you can take it yeah you can but, but no like i don't think but maybe it's because there's like three of you that are like middle child we all have our like niche in our family it's a bit like i guess we all rolled but apart yeah. from that we're all, we're all actually quite different i actually have so the first time <clears throat> so before i met matilda the first like encounter i had with your family yeah. was <laughs> when we'd gone to seattle to race the winter makeup and on the flight on the way back i was sat next to noddy your brother and yeah. i'd like, never met him the flight was roughly 10 hours long and i'm gonna say for nine hours and 59 minutes of that flight your brother spoke at me <laughs> and asked me so many questions i'm not joking by the end of the flight he could have probably written my autobiography for me he'd also at some point was trying to write me some Wait. dating profile up for <laughs> plenty of fish that dates it a bit. Plenty of fish. Yeah, no, that was the one. that was. It wasn't Tinder. It wasn't Bumble. It wasn't Hinge. He was gonna make me a plenty of fish profile. <laughs> I mean, I might get this wrong, and I don't know if he's gonna listen to the podcast or not. Yeah, no. But he'd he wanted to have he wanted to come up with some sort of like Google search engine for people who like if you've got something like wrong with you so you know if you like got symptoms of something the first thing people do is get onto google try and work out what they've got and they come out with like the worst possible answer or hepatitis it usually is something like that yeah what you i think if i understand correctly what he wanted to do was have something where people could like like log their symptoms and like log their progress and what they were doing and everything so there was like this massive database that other people could access so they could effectively treat themselves. And I don't know whether he was trying to like relieve the NHS. Can I just get some clarity? How does this feed into your dating profile? Yeah. <laughs> Jack, the flight was 10 hours. <laughs> are we, we going to get a minute by minute blow? No, yeah. this what was just, these, these are just like the key points I remember. Jesus, if this is if this is the highlight, Sam, how how did you even ever agree to meet me? <laughs> I was forced. Remember, you were Matilda's boyfriend. Yeah, <laughs> oh, Matilda's boyfriend. We're going to keep referring to you as we're. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, thank <laughs> you. Oh, oh, Matilda's yeah. boyfriend. Confirm. <laughs> Once upon a time, you were going out with Matilda. No. Nothing coming from my end. <laughs> I uh, yeah, I didn't really have a choice in meeting you, really. I was friends no. with, I lived with Matilda, so it was never. when you guys first met when you moved in with Matilda, Sam? Did yeah. we meet when, when, like, I came down to visit the first time? I genuinely don't remember how we met. I can't remember the first time we met. It must, you must have come down to visit. Well, you know what they yeah. say, make a lasting first impression. <laughs> yeah. It probably hey, involved... me and Ben are, like, best friends. We hang out yeah. without Matilda. Yeah, we do. That's the we difference. Is that why it was Matilda's boyfriend? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, and Noddy wrote a really good dating profile. Up. Yeah. <laughs> On the recommendation. Jack, I don't know if you've have you ever heard of this app, Clip Prenet Your Fish. It's really good for kind of meeting people with, you know, yeah. similar interests. Yeah. You won't have the microphone issues on Plenty of Fish, trust me. No. <laughs> 
Right, so after that long-winded <laughs> introduction, we should probably actually talk about you, Ben, and what you actually <laughs> do. So I think you're best at explaining what you do. We'll start with the day-to-day, and then we'll go back to kind of where you started and how you got into it, and that sort of yeah. thing, and the struggles you've encountered on the way. So I'm a scientist, I guess, is the easiest description of, of, of what I do. I work at the National Heart and Lung Institute, which is at Imperial College. I'm interested in the heart, a, a project actually that I'm, I haven't start well. I've kind of started it, but I'm I'm starting a new job officially in about a month's time, which is um, where we're basically trying to make a new device to be able to monitor heart disease through blood tests. The idea is basically that instead of just doing one blood test with one tube of blood, you could do say like five hundred blood tests with a tube of blood. You could almost like like becoming de rigueur with kind of not only from a NHS or healthcare side of things, but like from a sporting side of things of health tracking. So like if you if you think of like the super sapiens, um, I think it is that does the like yeah. blood glucose monitoring. I'm actually just starting a partnership with them. I thought you might be interested um, in them. Yeah. I think that so, is a really cool, really cool idea. Yeah. So they've reached out to one of the athletes I work with and asked if we can put together like a, a package on like the content side of things and part of that is that they will also uh sp- like not sponsor me but like give me access to their yeah. sensors and stuff in the lead up for the next year in my training and stuff so yeah you, i've been would, reading a, reading a lot around it and looking into it it's very interesting. would you be allowed to use it in competition because i know what the problem with the cyclists is they're not allowed to use it, it during a race we are yeah because they've just sponsored kona so they're kind of like want everyone to use it in competition and they're just bringing out software that shows you it live to like your garmin and stuff so you can see your sugar levels as you're going really i think i think it's an absolute game changer i think it'd be really good Uh, i think like around training and stuff it's less insightful if you already have a good grisp grasp on what you're doing and more like when you come to racing you know you can you not necessarily feel when you're going low like you can actually see the data on when you're about to blow and when you need a bit of extra carbs and when you don't and that sort of thing so i think that'll be really interesting yeah i think i think for iron man and stuff i mean because i've never done one but it just seems that like so much of it is like the planning and knowing what you can do beforehand and i just think this would just give you just give you you know when people are like oh i felt like i was on a good day this can kind of give you that extra kind of level that I don't think yeah it can show you why have at the moment. back up yeah. what you have yeah sorry so I interrupted your story there but no no so well, basically the idea there's lots of these technologies that are coming out that are basically like we all carry around a really powerful mobile telephone software is at a point where like computing power isn't a problem anymore so like you, you shouldn't really have to go to a hospital to get a blood test like that, that, that's pointless. It's in like in COVID right. times, people couldn't go to the hospital. There's a device that already exists and I'm basically trying to hack it to make it um, be able to detect lots of things in your blood at the same time. So usually a, a, when you have a blood test, it will detect a protein in your blood. So um, with your heart, that protein is usually something called BNP. If BNP goes up uh, by 10 times, then your chances of having a heart attack within the next few hours goes up exponentially people aren't monitoring the bnp so is that a, a, an indicator for heart rates uh, sorry heart attacks yeah so it basically if you if you if the muscle cells in your heart become overstretched they release this hormone okay um so it's a great marker for if you're going to have a heart attack but people don't monitor it because well 
it's difficult and heart attacks are quite rare. It's our idea to basically take these proteins and, and, and come up with a device that's easy for people to carry around. So say you've got diabetes, then we'll give you one of these devices. And then instead of you having a heart attack and then coming to the hospital, we monitor your BNP and some other things. So we're like a big area of expansion is something called microRNAs, which again float around in your blood and affect how which genes are expressed in different tissues. So they're a bit of a wild west at the moment, but they're, they're a big up and coming kind of field. So we think we can detect them in combination and kind of spot heart attacks. Like the, before you have a heart attack, something has to go wrong in your heart. So structurally it has to change. Kind of the markers and the shrapnel from that restructuring process have to be detectable in the blood. So we think we can do that. You'll have a certain amount of that remodeling process before the heart attack actually happens. So if you give it to, if you give this device to people, this is getting really boring. But if you get no, if no, you, not at all. You, it's actually really interesting. If you give these device to people who've got a predisposition for, say, like a heart attack, so a diabetic person, that, that, that's like one of the top top reasons you would have a heart attack is because you've got diabetes. Yeah. You could you could spot this heart attack coming on, and you could then, you know, they could do that from home. It connects to your phone. It sends your doctor in the hospital. Your results. It tells you, doctor, this person's stats aren't looking good. So you've got like a blood passport of this person for the last however long they've been using the device. Yeah. They they hit certain thresholds and you go, something's not working. Let's change your medication. Let's bring you in. Let's check you out. Is there anything we can do? And, and it, it, the idea is basically instead of do like a reactive, oh, you've had a heart attack. What do we do now? Can you do a proactive of can we can we spot it and can we treat it before anything bad happens? So that's my project that I'm going to be doing um, in the next few months. So Topical with the, um, what happened in the Euros with Christian Eriksen. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And how, like, they've had a few now in the footballers of people randomly getting them. And I guess if it's... Well, you look at, at cycling as well, right? When you retire yeah. as a professional cyclist, the average pro cyclist has a heart attack within three years. And they don't know, you know, obviously do a lot of Ironman and train a lot of pros and stuff. And... The sport itself is only 40 years old, Ironman. And like the stress that people put their bodies under to achieve that, there's no real long-term data to show, like, you know, the heart being one main example of like what effect that's having. Yeah, I mean, the thing is with the heart, when it goes wrong, like with the, the only thing that if something goes wrong, it's worse is your brain. But the heart is the next thing where if something goes wrong, it's really quite dramatic and really quite serious. Like... If your liver's having a bit of an off day or something like that, then you might feel a bit crap. It'll usually recover. Okay, liver failure is pretty serious, but you know, you know what I mean. Like yeah. the heart is pretty instant with when you have a problem with it. Um, so like stuff like often with um, so with the uh, Ericsson was it with in the football? I would imagine he had some sort of um, genetic component. So like two thirds of of people who get um, dilated cardiomyopathy, which is the most common heart disease, um, two thirds of those people it will have it because they have some sort of genetic predisposition to it. So for Fabrice Mwamba had a genetic component to why he had a heart attack. Um, and lo- lots of people carry these things, but then it doesn't necessarily mean that you'll get it. it you know, so it might be that if you're an athlete, it might be that you've pushed your heart so hard that it. The, the slight weakness that that genetic disease, you know, mutation you have it might not be a disease, but it might just push you over into the red and cause a problem. Um, but yeah, I think I think 
um, there's, there's interesting stuff with cyclists where you, a lot of them get like um, atrial fibrillations. Yeah. So often, often when you hear they like have a problem, heart problem during a season, they'll go in and they'll have an ablation surgery, which is where they basically go in with a really hot poker <laughs> and zap or really cold poker actually and zaps themselves uh, at the point where the um, action potential for the heart, so the, the electrical signal for the heart, where that generates, is in the atria. Because that's what Fraser had, wasn't it? Where we yeah. had him on the podcast a few episodes ago. Fraser had an ablation to remove some of those cells so that less there's less electrical activity in the heart, so you hopefully get more coordination between the chamber. Here's an unrelated million-dollar question. <laughs> How linked is cholesterol and heart disease i think I, I i don't know i don't know the literature well enough i but i i, I think there is a bit of a I, I don't think it's as strong as people think it is because statins are the most financially the most yeah. successful drug ever created yeah and it's really interesting it's, it's like a classic so i did pharmacology as my undergraduate degree and i cool. i i'm not sure if it was one of my questions in in like my second year exam or something like that but it was certainly one that we prepared, which was a discussion on whether or not everybody who's over the age of 55 should be given a statin or not, because the cost of a statin is basically nothing. Again, you can't necessarily predict who's going to need a statin. So if you give it to everyone, it costs a lot. Um, yeah. And then how many people, those people are not going to need it? And how many of the people are you going to save? Um, and basically the, ma the math comes out that you should probably give everyone a statin. It, it might be that statin, well, the, the, there's data coming out that suggests that statins don't just lower your cholesterol. There's perhaps like off-site effects. Um, that might be what's actually beneficial. But I think a lot of the cholesterol data was done in rats, if I remember rightly. Right. Um, which is usually what happens in, in biosciences. Poorly powered rats studies are usually what happens, <laughs> unfortunately. When did you first know you wanted to be a scientist? Like, were you good in school? And like, let's go back to kind of like childhood did it did science come easily to you were you always kind of pointed in that direction i kind of always liked science so with i, I don't know if i kind of realized it to begin with but like probably one of the first conversations i ever remember having with my dad this is gonna sound really weird but as a family we always used to sit down for dinner every night around the kitchen table dad used to just always my dad's a brilliant at lobbing grenades into conversations and just like busy forcing debate that's where you get it from then yeah yeah oh my god yeah <laughs> <laughs> often it would end in arguments and stuff like that but i remember i didn't remember being about i must i can't have been much more than sort of four or maybe five like not very old my family are prolific tea drinkers and everyone had a cup of tea in front of them except me i don't drink tea we were having a discussion over whether a cold like a lukewarm cup of tea would cool down quicker than a hot cup of tea. Every, everyone in my family, dad was obviously just stirring the pot here. This is, it was a much more interesting conversation than it sounds. But like every, the, everyone else was saying, so my brothers and sisters were saying, oh, well, the, the, the cold one will cool down quicker. And I was the only one who, I, I couldn't find a way to articulate it, but I said, well, no, the hot one will cool down quicker because it's, it's got like more to go. And so I think yeah. we, got, we got a thermometer out and basically we said, well, which one will drop 10 degrees quicker? And of course, the hot, the hot one, one yeah. drops wig. Yeah. yeah and I genuinely remember it and just been like, yeah, I knew that was right. And like, there were just kind of stupid conversations like that with my dad when I was really young that kind of hung with me. Like by the time I was doing my GCSEs, I, 
like I only read I only wanted to do science by the point I did well when I did my A levels I did biology chemistry physics and maths so I was pretty <laughs> I was pretty kind of you were pretty set on one track weren't you pretty, pretty pigeonholed <laughs> by that point and you weren't suddenly uh, going to become an artist <laughs> <laughs> no no um so yeah I think it was kind of a natural thing for me to do I like to think things through so I, I wouldn't say I'm particularly good scientist like when I was at school I certainly was never the best in any of my classes or anything like that I think I was just a bit more persistent than everyone else but I like I enjoy it and like often that you, you can see it work when I have students or master's students come in you can tell the ones that are going to be good and going to be bad from like how resilient they are because mm. basically a lot of science is doing the same thing a number of times that's quite boring and the ones that you know and often it doesn't work so the resilient ones are the are the ones that tend to kind of mark out a career in it, which is maybe how I've done it. I've just been a bit more resilient than everyone else. And did the fascination with the heart, did that start with your own heart thing, with your own heart issue, or was that, did you already have an interest in that? Yeah, I think it drew it into focus. But I think I, I've always found the heart just like absolutely nuts. It's just the most stupid thing. Like you, if you're going to, if you're going to design an organism you would never design a heart it's a weird <laughs> tube that kind of folds itself up into four chambers and then you have to coordinate all those contractions you know one what every second you've got to coordinate those contractions otherwise you die it's like absolutely stupid okay if you were to design a heart how would you do it differently well i would have a i, I probably would have a, like a continuous flow i wouldn't have a pulse because if you have a pulse as well you then have to over engineer all your all your vessels to deal with the high pressure at the, at the top of a contraction. So therefore you have to build in like obsolescence into a system. So you would have a continuous flow device of some sort. Um, and you, you certainly wouldn't have four chambers. It has a brilliant capacity to be able to adjust its volumes depending on what, what your muscle needs are. So maybe it is the right thing to, to design it. There's a fact as well, like I'm proper nerd now in science, so just cut me off here. Your heart uses so much ATP so it uses so much energy when it contracts that you only have 10 seconds of ATP in your heart at any one time. So if your stocks are fully loaded, if I stopped all the metabolism in your heart, in your heart, it, it would run out of energy after 10 seconds. And I just find that like ridiculously stupid again. Like, so where's the energy coming from? It's just constantly producing it. That's why oh, okay. that's why you walk, you get so hot so quickly is because the metabolism is having to go so fast all the time to just keep your heart going. It's like massively inefficient. But I just find that ridiculous. If if we'd invented it and put it in a car, we'd be saying it was horrific for the environment. I was wondering if like the similar application of being able to test one valve for different things multiple times could be, you know, made into sort of a more efficient like blood passport for doping, say for athletes or similar stuff. Um, if you have a simple monitor to monitor different things in your blood that you can just carry around, yeah. then kind of like you could provide blood tests almost daily to prove that you're clean. Yeah. So I, uh, with regards to like drug testing, you you probably have to redesign it. But if you wanted to take this and say look for liver disease or lung diseases, or, or even you could use it to test for COVID. Um, you could take the technology and apply it to something something new or cancer would be a really nice one to expand into the blood passport i i 
I'm not sure if it would work, mainly because if you give people the thing that you tested, if I gave you, Jack, a device and you were intent on cheating a system, giving yeah, you the I device so. that's going to catch you probably isn't the best thing. Um, but I mean, more to record like the blood passport and the doping side of things. And then yeah, with those yeah. other diseases, can you, because that's what, um, that's why they take regular tests, right? So yeah. they can then have your blood passport and look for anomalies down the line. A lot of that was like the hematocrit rate, uh, isn't it? Uh, what they look at for like certainly yeah. for EPO and things like that. Yeah, you could you could look for that. So the kind of big advantage of what what my device is looking at is, is the fact that it not only can it do multiple things, it doesn't really matter what the heck you want to detect. It could be a fatty acid or cholesterol or whatever. It could be a piece of DNA. It could be a protein. You can this device can can detect them all at the same time, which is different so to. So it is similar to the Super Sapiens application in that you could, I don't know if you fit it or it's a device you carry, but like with one fitted, you can submit all of that data at once for someone to look through. So if there are, so, you know, where I'm going with it is like at a later stage, is this, has this got the capability of you use it every morning and it tells you like, you know, unfortunately you do have cancer or maybe you are gonna you could have a heart attack today and if every person did that would you catch much more disease much earlier on that's what that's what we're hoping you would do you would do it from a basically a usb stick and you'd give yourself a pinprick okay um and that would be sufficient blood to be able to supply but you you know it wouldn't be a million miles away from putting that on your arm it would just be how to power it but um, the idea, maybe every day you probably wouldn't necessarily see things, um, but getting people to do it like weekly or something like that would just be like a phenomenal amount of data that you could give clinicians um, to just help inform things. And you could, you could. That's one of the biggest issues at the minute, right? Is that like, especially through COVID, they've not been picking up illnesses early enough. Yeah, 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 so yeah. you know, you're getting you're getting diagnosis, a diagnosis. And, you know, they're saying, like, unfortunately, because you've not come in for two months because of COVID, it's it's too late or we're yeah. limited in what we can do. So by catching those things super early, you have the maximum ch- like chance of survival, I suppose. Yeah. Like, it's a it's a big issue with, like, health care. Like, the way that the NHS is set up, it's absolutely brilliant for, like, if you get hit by a bus. Like, it, it it's perfect. You know, within an hour, you're in the hospital you've got a drip or whatever you need, you've got your, your, your fractures being set, you've got a cast on it. Like that emergency medicine is absolutely like top draw. But the more, pe- more people are dying from things like cancers now, like, you know, cardiovascular disease and cancer kill almost everyone in, in the Western world. Like they're, they're the two things that will probably get you. And so they're, they're not things that kind of sneak up on you. But the way that, you know, how many times do you hear stories of people who've got cancer who say, well, I went to the doctor because I had a bad back and he just said, oh, take these, you know, painkillers or whatever. And I went back because the painkillers weren't really working. And then I got a pain in my leg and, you know, and it, it was only the time when I went to see the sixth doctor that did they test me for cancer and I had it and it was full blown or whatever. Um, yeah. Like we just, the, the healthcare systems we have aren't set up for that. So to like, and it's because we're, everyone's surviving. <laughs> Like that's yeah. the fact of it, you know, healthcare is, you know, a hundred year, hundred or so years ago, we were just starting to have antibiotics. Like to think we've gone from just starting to have antibiotics to like an MRNA vaccine. A new one. <laughs> yeah. It's just, 
it's it, the, the rate of change is massive. So yeah. now, but now medicine needs to move to a proactive than a reactive system, almost definitely, I would say. Um, we have an ATP update. Oh, um, yeah. Yes, I've Googled it's it. It's not the tennis, Sam. It's nothing to do with tennis. <laughs> um, I'm... You're going to kill me, are you? No. Well, no, I'm going to put the disclaimer out here and say my source is Google and it is Wikipedia. However, it says that an adult requires the hydrolysis of 100 to 150 moles of ATP daily, which yeah. is around 50 to 75 kilograms. Oh, there you go. It's even more. Yeah. A human will typically, phenomenal, isn't it? A, a human will tip, typically use up their body weight of ATP over the course of the day. I didn't think it was that much. I, I'm going to pull open my, uh, I've got it written down somewhere. So yeah, but that's what Wikipedia has told me. Isn't that Where crazy? Where does that come from and go to? Well, a lot of the, see, it's a lie because what happens is ATP gets used up, it becomes ADP. It's just it, resynthesizing, basically. Yeah, so yeah. it gets yeah. recycled. But it's still absolutely nuts. Yeah. That is nuts. That's like 75 kilos. Yeah, 50 to crazy. 75 kilos. That's insane. That is crazy. Right, I've actually found the conference I was at where I, I've pulled up the document here. Okay, here we go. This is how official and not Wikipedia. No, it's going down for real. Uh, where is it? Oh, come on. We get a source and everything here. I've only got six kilos here, actually. Well, there we go. <laughs> ah, because, ah, yes, of course, because um, a lot of the heart uses fatty acid oxidation. So it uses oh, I wasn't looking at the heart. Yeah. This was just in, This was just the body. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. So it, your, your heart uses 10% of the energy of your body then, if you use 70, 50 to 70. Six kilos, though. Can you imagine that in a bucket? Jack, how, many, how, how like when you're buying a new component for your um, for your bike, how, how how like do you look at the weight? Do you ever go for the ped? Do you never go for the pedals because they're like fifty grams lighter That's for the so pair? So expensive. <laughs> so like and like my take is so to some extent yes, like I'll buy carbon over steel if it's like not like my my bike is, is obviously carbon and that sort of thing. As long as the yeah. price point isn't astronomical like i'm not riding a steel bike because i need to be competitive but um things like pedals you know like i got ibs so an extra five minutes on a toilet in the morning and there's your 50 grams <laughs> you know, like, if not triple that so like especially for us like we're racing generally quite flat and fast in a straight yeah, line so, so weight's not quite as imperative it's like you sort of like once you're up at speed you hold speed pretty well, and then you're just ticking, like using your power to maintain speed. So, see, I always, I always wonder this about rowing as well. I always think rowing needs to get heavier. Apart from the start, as soon as you like, you want a heavier boat, do you not? Yeah. But people, which always, is weird, yeah. because we all we everyone boat. tries to have their boat at the absolute minimum weight it can be. I think it's wrong. If you could get a boat, and I'd put loads of weight in the bottom of the hull, I'd basically make a boat that you couldn't tip, and then you can yank on it even more, so you don't even have to do good technique. I think like a great example of a boat like that is like the men's four from the Europeans this year, the GB men's four. Like loads of people were saying, oh, they didn't roll very well. And I was like, yeah, but they won by like... They didn't need to. They won by like, what was it, four lengths? It was miles, yeah. And it was, it was just because they, ha they had such a solid boat they could just pull so hard. And it's like, instead of trying to make a boat that's, you know, everyone's kind of worked out that you need a boat that's thinner than it is long. But it doesn't really matter what the shape is or what you 
what your rig is made of, like just make a boat that can't can't tip and you go I swear you go so much faster. Yeah, but, for us it's just wind. So like something nuts yeah. like eighty percent of your resistance is wind. You know, you can feel that when you're riding fast on a bike, whether if you're on the flat and even if you've got a tailwind, it feels pretty windy. Uh, and yet, the best example is if you ever go to a track, indoor velodrome, um, and it feels so windy when you get up to speed because, yeah, you're just like against, you're just pushing against air, mm-hmm. just air resistance. Uh, it's not it's not wind, it's air, yeah. Well, especially in cycling, they go a lot quicker at altitude, don't they? Velodromes, yeah. well, that's yeah. why they're quite... Yeah. I'm trying to think well, who I read. I think it was Chris Hoy's book, and he was like the difference of when he used to cycle in the outdoor velodromes. Wiggins considered doing his hour record at altitude. Well, Camperdarts did. Yeah, yeah, he did, yeah. He went to Mexico. Yeah, that's the yeah. track they all use. I can't wait for Ghana to go to go and do the hour. It's going to be filthy. It's going to be horrific. He got flat and still won the stage. I mean, we're going properly off piece here. But do you ever look at the K- um, team KTF, like Dan Biggles's um, track cycling team at all? Have you heard They're, of uh, Dan Bigham. Yeah, sorry, yeah. The Ribble, the Ribble riders yeah, down in Barbados. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they're phenomenal. They're just like they're just like a big like F you to the system. Um, like we're doing it this way and. Uh, if you're not going to support us, we'll show you we're faster. That's how it originally seemed to start. Um, yeah. And yeah, they're just doing some amazing stuff. Right, you uh, told me about them before. That story rings a bell. Yeah. Well, he, he's head coach of the Danish um, team uh, team pursuit now. And they they smashing the world record. Left yeah, they basically... Team. Dan Bigham, didn't he basically not get picked for Worlds? For GB, so went by himself and won it, or something like that. Yeah, he became the coach and beat the GB team. Basically. Yeah, I heard it was something along the lines of. Obviously, he's got a lot of ideas, and I'd imagine this is where Sam, you can probably provide some um, opinion. But maybe um, the governing bodies of British sports that have traditionally done very well aren't particularly receptive to um, maybe changing the <laughs> changing what they do. I feel like we've, as a nation, I think just in all sports, well, the sitting down sports, Great Britain have been very, very good at. And I think we've been very good for a variety of reasons. But one of the big ones is the amount of money and having UK sport and having the national lottery has been huge for sport in this country. And when that got brought in, you could see the results happen. It was they got got better in Beijing. They were even better in London, and then they kind of then managed to be one of the only nations that managed to carry on that success. Then to an away Olympics, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but I feel now as other countries are being able to provide their sports with more money, that. It's the gap is definitely closing. And I think, to be honest, it's almost overtaken because they've had to do all of this stuff. They've had to try and be the best in the world without the money. So they've they've looked elsewhere. They've had to look out the box and they've had to do things differently. And they've been they've been used to thinking about other ways of trying to achieve stuff, whereas 
Great Britain, it was very easy to get the best coaches in because they had the most money to get the best physiologists and the best sports scientists in because they had the money to do that. And they could also primarily just like have a group of full-time athletes who didn't have to work. And that's made a huge difference. But now other countries can do that. And I feel like we've almost not seen it coming and the success has been there. And I mean, everyone says like, why fix something if it's not broken? But I don't think any, I just feel like maybe we just got a little complacent and it's, it's scary. Like it's, no one wants to come in and be the person to be like, hang on, like, why are we doing it like this? Because the answer nine times out of 10 is, well, we've always done it like this. And I think it was something that I read somewhere. I'm not sure, but it was to do with a team pursuit, one of the cycling teams. And they, I think it was one of their like mechanics or something who like didn't know what wasn't a cyclist was very much just came in at a completely different angle and just went like, well, why do you only have this ring set on this bike? Like, why don't you have a bigger set? Because that will make you go quicker. And it was like, well, we've always had this. And he's like, well, why why don't you do it like that? And it was like, why does your front rider only do like this distance on their, on their like stint? Why don't they do a bit longer? And it was like someone just coming in with these questions that made people think differently. And then they went on and won the gold medal probably wasn't predicted from the rest of the Olympiad that they'd had. And I feel like that's almost like what what team what team GB and what Great Britain need is just more people coming in with maybe the obvious questions. Yeah. Of just being like, well, why? Like, why do you do that? But it's like it's scary because you don't want to disrupt something that's been really successful. And it, it is a stab in the dark. You don't know if it'll pay off. And if it doesn't pay off, you have a lot of people ready to tell you that it hasn't worked. Yeah. I guess there's like diminishing returns, aren't there? Like the number of obvious questions are going down and down, aren't they? Like, yeah, you can only look at things a certain way for so long. There's also like how many teams do you know that are coached by someone in their mid twenties? Yeah. No, like I can't name any yet in every other field you would trust someone in their mid twenties to make suggestions. And well, there's still a massive like ageist thing. And it, um, that's a problem within itself. But like, you know, like a lot of people in will trust young up and coming fresh ideas and sport doesn't seem to be open to that. It seems to be there's still that hierarchy of. Yeah. I think one of the things with that is we're very good at selecting X sports yeah people. i was gonna say there seems to be this hierarchy mm. of like you have to have made it in the sport before yourself you're yeah. yeah earn your stripes first yeah but then i don't like there is no formula that says that if you're a good player or you're a good performer that you automatically become a good coach like they're, they're two completely well, different Sam, roles who's the best coach you've ever responded to well it'll be dan harris yeah uh, did he row of elite himself no Oh, I think he probably, I think he probably won elite quads at Durham Ricketta one year. He's going to be so offended. He's going to be so, but like Dan, I lined that one up so heavily as well. You know, Dan and I went to school, Jack. Did you? 
Yeah, Dan was a Eurosport. What, what was he like? Fifteen years older than you, and <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, you always like. So obviously, when you're a student, you assume that all of the staff are significantly older. And obviously, Dan significantly went and... more mature. Yeah. <laughs> so while we were rowing, I never really had loads of interaction with Dan. Obviously, just saw him on the river because I wasn't on start or anything. But I just assumed that, like, ah, oh, well, I'm 20, he must be 30. And obviously, he was like two or three years. He's not that much older than me at all, I don't think. He's no, like he's, two or well, three years only, older than you guys. He's like four years older than me, yeah. Yeah. So... But that's the thing. Like, he was literally straight out of uni. Like, he's one I'm of the actually amazing few... ideas. Well, he just didn't know what he was doing. He would, okay, this sounds awful, but it's all, it's all, it's all like positive stuff. It just doesn't sound positive. But he'd like sit in the launch watching with like a, like watching rowing on YouTube on his phone and literally just compare what he saw to what he was looking in front of him. But, There's a lot to be said for that, right? Yeah. But, but what he did know, but what he did know about was stuff in the gym and the weight stuff and that was the stuff he knew and that was the that's the kind of stuff that he's gone okay well i've been provided with this as a framework but actually i'm gonna go off and work out what actually works yeah and he's like he's definitely one of the co- and i think this is why he did as what he has done and is doing as well as he has done is that he one does not care less about asking people for help or advice like has as in he will always ask for help yeah he will like he has no issue in asking people like there is no there's no pride he doesn't feel like there's he's not yeah he's not you have to work out yourself yeah yeah he's like happy to go and ask people that know more about things than him and and but he was like he was literally straight out of uni he'd like was i think he was like part way through his gap year when he got the phone call to be like yeah there's a job come up for you Colin Williamson, who's the coach at Edinburgh, I heard the, one of the first things he did was he took the biomechanists from Edinburgh Uni out on a launch and and got them to look at the rowing and said, right, what should they be doing? Possibly, quite possibly. And I heard that he basically said, look, you 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 know how to make, you know, you know the mechanics of things. Tell me what I should, how I should coach. I mean, Edinburgh have been going great. Yeah. I don't know if that's I mean... true, but. What's but it's like what you can do to look outside the box to find the answers, right? And a lot of people just stay inside the box because they are scared to go out. And there's a lot to be said for just finding the best answer yourself and asking for help outside rather than, you know, like, oh, well, we've always done it this way. So let's just slightly elaborate on that. You know, if you rip up the rule book and start again, it might take you a while to find your feet, but you'll find the answers. Really recently listened to a podcast where they interviewed Toto Wolf from Mercedes and like very successful team, like very successful Formula One team. Mm. And it was like fascinating listening to him talk about the team around him. And basically he was like, I get way too much credit for this team's success than what I deserve because he knows what his, he knows what he's good at and he knows what other people are good at and so they employ the best people at their jobs but then you have to go and let them do their job yeah and you can't you can't try and micromanage everything because that's not your special speciality like you employ the best people you see this all the time in big corporations they employ amazing young talented graduates and then tell them what to do 
Yeah. And rather than employing them and asking them what they think they would do. Yeah. And I think like, but it's also just like, and looking at things from like, uh, one of the things they must have brought up was they were empl- employing new people. And one of like the top things on the list was like a first or a two one from like in this degree from these universities. And he was, he was just like, well, why is this a thing? And I said, well, we need the best people. And he's like, if this was your selection policy, I would not be working here because I do not meet those standards. It's so common that, isn't it? It's like, it's like what I said before, like actually resilience is the, you know. Oh, there's so much more. Like there is so much more that lot, people have to people offer. Get, get you, a Russell yeah. group, you know, Oxbridge education and just get out of the back of it and not, and you know, do very well and, be incredibly intelligent but just not have the resilience to to like be the person who has the idea and go no no there's something there i want to i want to investigate it you know yeah or just like the initiative or just like the interest like just to like i think if you don't know everything about it like you say like you're just really like inquisitive and you want to know more it's also that process of like working it out just sticking you're right on the resilience band of just like sticking with it and you must find this in science all the time because like you something doesn't work but you're fairly convinced there's an idea in there so you just keep exploring and chipping and this did work this didn't work and slowly build, flesh out that bigger picture until until you find something that works or if it doesn't work learn all of the lessons from that process and move to something else yeah a lot of people aren't willing to like, oh, it doesn't work twice. Cool, that's wrong. We'll start again. It's like, no, no, like stick with it. Like you obviously are pursuing that for a reason. So stick with it and learn the lessons. And eventually you'll find out what the right answer is, whether it might be completely different to where you started, but that pathway of and that resilience to continue to pursue that will lead you towards it. This has been self-indulgent, but I'll go for it. There was an experiment <laughs> I was trying to do when I was doing my PhD. So my PhD was on something called the ryanidine receptor, which is uh, a, a protein that exists on a, a membrane in, your, in every heart cell. And it's basically a gate that allows calcium to be released into the cell. And calcium is what allows your muscle fibers to contract. So you get what you call a calcium wave when a contraction happens. Calcium goes up really high, the muscle contracts calcium goes back down again the muscle relaxes and that's what happens and to get that calcium to all go high in the cell all around the cell at the same time you these rhinodine receptors have a chain reaction um and so that's how they coordinate the kind of response and for ages i was interested in seeing if other um molecules could pass through the rhinodine receptor so um I was looking at other metal ions that would, to the, to, to the cell, would look kind of similar. So I was looking at magnesium and zinc and, and saying, well, does magnesium pass through this gate by accident? Um, can it do something? And for ages, I was looking at this magnesium and zinc and it, the experiment just wasn't working, wasn't working. Um, but whenever I did it with calcium, it would work. And so then I did the experiment the other way around and I found that they were both inhibitors of the channel. So it, <laughs> My entire, like, just resilience of, ah, fuck it, I'll give it another go. I basically worked out that these things were inhibitors of the gate, so they stopped the gate from opening. And then that was that was my thesis. Like, that, oh, one, nice. that one day I decided to do it the other way around, that created the entire hypothesis for the rest of my thesis. Nice. Um, 
so that was quite fun. But yeah, sorry, long story. <laughs> no, no. So, so we should probably. So that's quite interesting because obviously our podcast is in theory about challenges and setbacks that you've experienced along the way. What would you say the biggest challenge or multiple that you've faced are in the journey to where you've got? To? I think probably like the most difficult thing was was getting getting a PhD position. So like finding finding somebody who would would allow me to do a PhD. I, I didn't have the money to fund myself, so I, I needed to find somebody who had money and persuade them that I was the right person to do that. So I tried all over the UK and somebody, a, a lovely lady called uh, Sam Pitt, gave me a PhD position in Scotland, in St Andrews. And I'd probably say I, I wouldn't have done that now. Like I, now that I'm older, I think moving to, okay, it's Scotland, but moving to a new country, not not knowing anybody and kind of like having to take your entire life. Like, you know, I was going out with Matilda. She lived in, in London and kind of, okay, well, it wasn't directly related to my work life, but moving somewhere new and just having to get on with it. I didn't really know like what science you know, I was wet behind the ears, didn't really know how to do the experiments, had to teach myself everything. I was in a small, there was only myself and one other researcher in that group. So like, I didn't have anybody to ask. I just had, you know, Google was my friend for the first few, <laughs> for the first year or so yeah. of how do I do this? So I'd probably say that like, yeah, moving to somewhere completely new and just being like, right. Okay. You found super you. isolating. Yeah. I remember to begin with, I found it, I, I moved into a shared house to begin with, and it was terrible. And I remember just thinking, well, the closest you've got to this is you've been on training camps before. And I kind of thought, well, you know, nobody's really met there on a training camp to make friends. You're just there to kind of like do the training. Okay, you might have a good time, but it's about doing the training and kind of improving yourself. Yeah. And I basically used to sit myself down on an evening and go, it's all right, Ben. It's just a three-year training camp, but it's science, not... <laughs> but it's science not um not um ergs and that was the way i just used to view it and i was like it's a bit of a shit situation but three years is such a long time as well yeah i know it's and not then, in the grand scheme of your life i know like, but that it sets is. you up very well yeah. but it, it is when you're in it but i i you know i grew to love scotland i'd love to you know really really enjoyed it it's you know made a nice little world for myself up there and then I came down to London and annoyed Sam while I was writing up. No. Never. It's also cheaper up there. Why do you want to come back down? I was paid. When I was doing my PhD, you get a stripend. So you, it's basically like you get paid, Sam. So it's like it's not a salary. It's tax-free cash you get. I was paid in the first year, I think I was given £10,000 a year. And that was my entire income. And I think it went up to 12000 by the last year. And like, I just. What, what did you get? A four bedroom house in Scotland? <laughs> I had a really nice flat, actually. <laughs> bigger than the one I'm in now. But it was just like, there was just, I can't believe that. I, I know that sounds really weird, but obviously, when you, when you get a salary and you've got a bit more disposable income, you spend it. But I can't, I can't believe that I was able to like exist on that. It was good. Like, it's good life lessons, isn't it? Yeah. When you've got nothing, there was one, when I was doing my undergraduate degree, I really didn't have any money. And this, this story really upset, upsets Tilda, but there was one day I had no, literally had no money left in my bank account. I'd, I'd used up all of my, um, 
I'd extended my overdraft as much as I could. I'd done that. I'd spent all of my savings. I literally didn't have a penny in the world, but I, we had a penny jar in the, in, in the um, flat I was living in. And there was something like 50 pence in it. And um, I was like, right, well, this is what you've got until I think, I think it was literally like in three days time, my student loan was coming in and I was like, oh, I'll be all right. But for those three days, I spent, I lived off like that 50 pence. And it was like, it was like spaghetti, spaghetti and chopped tomatoes or something like that every night. But um, yeah, you, you, you learn, you learn the meaning of money when you've got none of it, don't you? Yeah. That's some adversity for you. Amazing. <laughs> Having no money. You're doing pretty well now. Usually we end with like, what's the most expensive thing you've ever bought? Extravagant thing. And now we've just ended with, so yeah, so I lived for three days off 50p. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah cool. this podcast has had no structure and we've not asked anything I'm about sorry. yourself but i've really really enjoyed it i think i yeah i think i've learned a lot like it's yeah. been really interesting just like did they explain a lot about about how i behave sam now no, because I think this is the first time that... <laughs> no, okay. nothing can explain that. No, wait. <laughs> wait, because usually when we're talking about these sorts of things, it's because we've had some sort of discussion, which is then not turned into an argument as such, but it's like <laughs> t- we're like strongly discussing something. We're trying to get our own points across. We both like to argue. Yeah. And actually this time it's felt like I've actually been able to listen and ask questions <laughs> if you just listen to me more often then oh like shut up <laughs> <laughs> this is the one opportunity i've kept quiet <laughs> no i'm joking because it, it does relate like science is relates to so many different things and like jack says it's been a very like n- unstructured podcast but like we've spoken about quite a lot of like up-to-date yeah, topics a bit of a whistle stop tour yeah but like being able to hear like the science behind things because everyone would have seen christian erickson like pass out on the football pitch now people might actually know a bit more behind it and actually how science is going to try and help things mm. like that it's really interesting actually um so I know you try to wrap things up, but so like with, with Ericsson, nah, like, Jack can edit it. You might, <laughs> with Ericsson, you might not, you might not have picked it up on a, um, like echo cardiogram, but say if you want to do an amateur bike race in Italy, you have to have a doctor with it. Like every season you have to have any, an echo done. If you even want to do like a cat three race, you have to have one. Like in the UK, we have, oh, mate, I run the marathon in Florence in, 2019 for my birthday and mm. i had to have like four letters from the doctor yeah. to prove that i was healthy enough to run the marathon mm. we have we have an ecg done every either four or five years in the team buy yourself an apple watch and you can do it every day i hate apple but <laughs> we've, got <an> EC- <laughs> we've got an ecg in their in their what in their new watches which is okay cool. but how good are they they're meant to be really good i mean ecgs aren't complicated okay it's really like they're not that sophisticated. Maybe we'll get sponsored by them now. Apple ECG. Yeah, we just had a doctor say that they're actually quite good. <laughs> Where can people find you, Ben? Do you want following on any form of platforms? Oh, blog, your team, your blog. Follow me on plenty of plenty of fish. <laughs> I'm on plenty of fish. 
Because <laughs> I'm now single. I still do that to this day. Oh my god. Um, I'm going to have to message Matilda. Actually, no, I won't. I'll just tell her to listen. <laughs> Gosh, she'll have a heart attack. <laughs> it's all right. Well, you can save good her. Job we got. Yeah, you'll see it coming at least. <laughs> Yeah, you can measure measure <laughs> for the right things. We've got the uh, we've exactly. got the markers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We even joked about this being like babe station. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, so the app, the app that Jack's got recording us on is called Ringer with an R on the end, and it just looks a little bit too close to Grinder. Mate, it's been a pleasure to um, have you on. Thanks for your time. Hi, sorry. I'm just still laughing at all the jokes. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks for coming. So we hope you enjoyed this episode of Won't Take Quite As Long To Get To You. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for stopping by and like and subscribe, tell your friends. And yeah, we'll be back very soon with another guest.